later. And then they're going to eat me. Oh, come on. Was there really any other clip I could use to intro this episode? Don't watch this film. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Don't Watch This Film, the podcast where we watch some of the worst horror movies in history so that you don't have to. My name is W. Adam Clark. My name is Tia, and I'm actually really excited because this movie is not last week's movie. It is automatically shoved upward in quality, which is actually a concern that I did legitimately have. Now that I have a baseline for what my worst movie is, am I going to be generous with my grading going forward? So I'm going to try to still be impartial, but I I I can't make any promises. I doubt (laughs) it. You you, you just know what qualifies as a 1 in 10, but that doesn't mean that anything else doesn't qualify as a 1 in 5, for example. That's true. Okay, that's fair. So this we oh god, we are we are we are visiting a classic among classics of bad cinema. I'm not even going to call it a bad horror movie, just bad cinema, bad something that is called film. Yeah, I think this legitimately rates in if you made a list of the top 100 unironically good bad movies, I'm pretty sure this would be in that list regardless of genre. If not close to like the top 10, my God. This week we are discussing the one, the only, the meme factory, Troll 2, which ironically has absolutely nothing to do with Troll 1. That's or, another story for another day. Or Troll 3, or the other Troll 3, or Control, all of which are tied together in the Troll were not related at all cinematic universe. I had no idea Troll 3 went that deep. Holy shit. Which Troll 3? Troll 3 or Troll 3? Yes. Okay. So the reason we're reviewing Troll 2 is due to one of our patrons, Steel33i. And the reason why we're using that name is that is his name on Twitch. So make sure you go and check out his uh, Twitch channel, Steel33eye at Twitch. And go give him a watch because he's a fun guy. And it's been a longtime supporter of myself and this channel. So make sure you hit that up. He really wanted us to go take a trip to Nilbog. So here we are today discussing Troll 2. I am ashamed to admit that it took me way too long to figure out the Nilbog thing than it realistically should have. But I noticed that you, during referencing this film, would regularly just call it Nilbog. I'm curious if you have like, is there some other property that you have or know about or worked on that used that in this sense that you're familiar with? Or is that just what you call it? No, it was just in part, it's sometimes used as just a code when talking about Troll 2 in order to separate it from anything else. Like if you want to make sure you're, this is the movie you're talking about. Also, it's kind of an ability to talk in code about a movie and have people not understand that that's what you're talking about because Nilbog is such obviously a wonderful piece of linguistical coding. (laughs) 
<laughs> and also, in the last few years, it's been useful sometimes to refer to this movie as Nilbog because Troll 2 and Trolls 2, if you try to Google search one, you're going to get the other. So if you discuss Nilbog or if you discuss the other one in units specifically relating to it, it's often a lot easier to differentiate the two. That actually makes a lot of sense. Also, I would just like to point out the... There are multiple elephants in the room, but the one I'm just going to put forth right at the front... Goblins are not trolls. Correct. So don't ask me where the name of this Ooh, originally... I, I, I have that information. We will get into that near the end. Okay, awesome. The mystery will be revealed, and honestly, I think there's going to be more questions than answers. However, let's get into the astonishingly cohesive narrative that right? this movie actually has i'm still stunned that there's like a beginning a it's, middle it is very an much end. an abc plot line like right through very very simple very easy to follow it's an abc plot line there's a family called the waits family they have arranged for i didn't even know this was a thing i still don't know if it's a thing they arranged for something called a home exchange vacation they agree to go to another town and live in someone's house and live their lifestyle kind of and in return that family comes to their house and lives the way that they live for a certain period of time it very well could just be a plot contrivance that seems like something that might happen I mean, I've it's never, never been terribly popular, but it is things that happen in certain circles. It's This movie was not the first nor only time I've ever heard of it. Mm. It's it's basically like an, almost like an alternative alternative timeshare kind of thing. You know, okay. you, have, you have a house and you want to go and spend time in Florida over the summer. And people who live in Florida know fucking better than to spend time in Florida over the summer. So you switch and then you never do it again because you just got tricked into spending two weeks in Florida in August. That was very specific. I'm just saying it's just a there. It's things that happen. But yeah, the, the <laughs> whole the whole, you know, house swap idea is not unique to this mm. story. I can't tell you for sure whether or not it started here, but I would be surprised if it did. That's fair enough. Okay, so they've agreed to go to this rural farm, uh, farming community village called Nilbog. The night before they leave, the son of the family, whose name is Joshua, is contacted by his grandfather, who apparently passed away some two, three months before the story begins, telling him the story of the goblins, of their cruelty, of their desire to turn people into purified plant hybrids that they can then consume because eating meat is terrible. That comes into play later. The family then, the next morning, packs up and gets into their van to make the drive off to Nilbog. Uh, at the same time, there's a, a plot going on that kind of comes back at some point. The daughter of the family has this boyfriend that she sees a lot. Dad doesn't approve because, you know, it's a turn of the 80s to 90s movie. Dads don't approve. In fairness, this kid isn't that great because apparently he likes just hanging out and getting drunk with his buddies rather than actually spending time with a real flesh and blood girl that tolerates his presence. So on the way there, the family has packed up and, and is ready to get going. Along the way, Joshua still insists that he sees and speaks to Seth, the dead grandfather. None of the family 
believes him. He sees Seth on the road trying to warn them not to go to this town. He has a dream about goblins, his family becoming goblins and going to eat him after he turns into a giant plant creature. None of the family buy this for a second. They eventually do get to Nilbog and find out that the family and the rest of the townsfolk that they meet later pretty much have a Stepford Wives thing going on. They're very creepy, they're very a few words, and there's just something off about them. But of course, you know, the dad having wanted to be a farmer for God knows how long doesn't catch on any of that. (laughs) Or God knows why. Like... One of, uh, one of the points where this movie breaks down for me is why are they going to spend a summer vacation doing backbreaking menial labor to relax? Like, I, <laughs> the movie doesn't work from premise. I mean, the the goblins aren't even the most unrealistic thing here. That's that's the problem. The goblins you'll believe before any city slicker with modern convenience family. The goblins to... I will the goblins I will believe before I believe that a family of four from the suburbs wants to move to Cornstalk, Indiana and spend an entire summer prepping a farm so that somebody else can come back and make money off of it. Yeah, that's uh ugh. You can no. only suspend your disbelief so much. <laughs> the family that take their truck and go off to the Waits' house have prepared food for them to eat. Unfortunately, one of the biggest plot points in the story that Seth Ghost, I guess is the only way you could put it, uh, told Joshua was that the way the goblins transform their victims into this plant base food stuff is by feeding them poisoned food or drink usually tinted green or having green coloring on it yeah it's always always green except mm-hmm. for when it's red because we're not going to tell you why consistency in yeah. my troll too so as his family is getting ready to tuck in seth's ghost appears to joshua and says you have to figure out a way to stop them from eating you have to figure out a way to stop them from eating joshua's admittedly effective idea comes when he stands on one of the chairs in the kitchen and pees all over the food, and I wish to hell I was kidding. Yep. It's a scene that uh, was actually a reshoot. Originally, he was just going to stand on the chair and scream, and that somehow convinced everybody not to eat dinner. And then the director realized that the scene wasn't strong enough, so he was like, "Ah, stand on the chair and just pee on the entire table. Obviously, it's the early 80s, so you don't see the kid peeing on the entire table. That would have been if the movie came out in the 90s. However, the implication is there. It's well enough documented and supported in the story that that's what happened, so just go with it. it. It happened. So, after effectively ruining the food that had been laid out and rightly pissing off his dad because we don't piss on hospitality. There's a very shoehorned conflict between the son and the father, and I still don't know why, but there's there's some artificially created animosity, and I, I think they were trying to go for some type of like ending resolution where the the, the two bond over realizing the kid wasn't insane i still don't know where that comes from but anyways 
At the same time, uh, Elliot, who is the daughter's boyfriend, who was supposed to show up for the in the morning to go on this trip, did not, and instead took his three buddies that he really likes for some reason, packed them into an RV, and decided to follow them up to this farmstead. So girlfriend is still pissed about that. They go out and start wandering and looking for things. One of the characters named Arnold, who, if you've seen any meme for this movie at all, you've seen the dude with the glasses, with the short blonde hair, you know exactly who the hell I'm talking about, finds a woman running in the forest and tackles her down. She apparently has already been force-fed some of the concoction that poisons a human. He meets the goblins, doesn't believe they're goblins, mocks the goblins, takes a spear in the shoulder as a result, and the two of them run off into a, what I can only describe as a chapel that's been converted. They meet the only, one of the only two people in this movie who's having any fun with this role at all, the druid witch character. I, I don't know that she's having fun with the role so much as she's just having fun with pharmaceuticals before the role. But I mean, if you're having fun either way, does it really matter? Uh... She does look a little bit strung out, but, you know, fairy magic will do that to you. So, apparently this woman is the goblin queen in charge of a magic stone, which is where all this stuff emanates from. She gives them a broth to drink. The girl ends up liquefying in front of Arnold's face. And this is where I'm going to say the practical effects in this movie are actually pretty damn good. Yes. They if if they got if they got nothing else right, the practical effects in this movie are really, really top. Like the best part of the movie, bar none. Cut back to the weights going into town because they realize there's no more food in the house because the poison feast was the only thing that was left for them. They go into town, they general store is closed for a sermon of some kind. Joshua goes exploring slash eavesdropping and finds the town in the barn being lectured on by a man who is espousing how evil meat is and how humans are cursed because they're meat eaters and how in order to purify them they have to do what they do in order to like in order to feed properly and the preacher character is the second character that i'm going to say is the only one having fun with his role because he literally looks like the only other person in this movie who actually gave a damn about the character he was trying to play. I mean, he is definitely swinging for the fences. There's no question about that. Joshua almost gets caught and gets forced-fed some poison ice cream. They take them back to their house when his dad comes in and says, what the hell are you doing? Slightly spooked. Still not enough to get him to leave yet. We're getting to that. Fast forward through them going back to the townhouse Everyone's there to greet them. There's another feast. He calls on his grandfather's spirit to help because he doesn't want his family to eat this stuff because he knows what's going to happen. To his grandfather's spirit manifesting and causing Preacher Goblin to explode in flames after igniting a Molotov cocktail with lightning after the preacher sent his soul to hell. And I wish I was kidding. Literally, it escalates that quickly. We go from creepy church scene to preacher got set on fire by a dead guy i was interested at this point eh. <laughs> if you've seen it once you've seen it a thousand times <laughs> after basically hoarding them in the house to kill them because now they know too much they managed to make it to the chapel where the oh god and i can't believe i'm about to say this 
the power of love and good triumphs over evil. The family breaks down the magic Stonehenge stone. All of the goblins and the goblin witch die or are destroyed. And the only people left alive are Elliot and the four. As they return home, they somehow forget that there was a family of goblins that were living in this house. The wife and the son who are dropped off at the house alone, she starts digging into a piece of fruit, an apple, thinking that it's safe. He starts going upstairs to detox from all the crazy shit they've just been through over the last 24 hours or so. And come to find out that, no, fruit is not safe. Because no vegetables are safe. Because that's part of the major message of this movie is that vegetables are bad. It really is. So, end scene after all of this goblin-y body horror bullshit is his mom basically... I think just a jello mold of a torso covered in green jello, honestly. Laying on the cow or laying on the uh, kitchen table, and the goblins inviting Joshua to have a bite of her, and him screaming, cut two credits. Right. I'm also going to argue that it's a continuity error because the other family never left Nilbog. They are seen in Nilbog in the sermon scene. And in fact, the father actually challenges them on that. They never left because they had quote unquote car trouble. And then they're involved in the final scene because they're extras in the background in the final scene with the goblins trying to stop them from destroying the piece of Stonehenge. So how exactly did they manage to make it to the house to poison the food in the Waits's actual house? If they never actually left Nilbog and the movie ends just as ludicrously as it begins with shit that can't happen. Not the first, last or only time that phrase will be uttered. I am certain. Yeah. Well, but yeah, that's, that is the film that is troll Two. That is what was it called? The best worst movie of all time. Best worst movie. Yeah. So the phrase numbers, that's often used to describe numbers. this movie. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, Uh, This movie came out rated PG-13. Genre is solidly comedy horror. The director is billed as Drake Floyd, although we know that is a pseudonym for Claudio Fragrasso, who is an Italian filmmaker. He is best known for After Death in 1989, right before this, Testa Rosate in 1993, and Palermo Milan in 1995. The producer for the film is listed as Filmirage Productions, which is a company that is owned by Claudio Fragrasso and his wife, who was the screenwriter for this project. The release date was October 12th, 1990. The budget is listed as $65,000. If you watch it, it's believable. And we're going to go into how they saved money, such as not having actors in just a second. Box office. Okay, so here's the thing. I can't find box office numbers for this because we think it went direct to video, but I'm not sure. And the reason why I'm not sure is I swear this was out in theaters at one point. Might be me misremembering and seeing it in theaters after it had already come out at some point, like 93, 94-ish. But I swear this came out in theaters. And I've also seen other people say the same thing. But nobody seems to be able to find box office numbers. So we're just going to call it a direct-to-video release. The runtime is one hour and 35 minutes. 
Okay. There was a few uh, articles that I could find that showed that this was actually screened quite a bit with, of all things, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's entirely possible you did see it in a theater, just not in the year 1990. Right. So, I mean, that's any of that's possible. And again, that might even be where I remember it because a band I was in in 91 and maybe 92, maybe it was just 91. It was somewhere around there. We used to open for the Rocky Horror Picture Show at the Harwin Theater, so that might have been where we saw it, and that might That's be what awesome. I'm thinking of. But yeah, who can tell? That's um, some awesome bit of Adam trivia we just got. Yeah, right. That is that is cool shit. It was a ska punk humor band called the Killer Guppies, by the way. Love it. I really do. There we go. I digress. All right. So uh, Rotten Tomatoes has a critical score of five percent and an audience score of forty-four percent. For this film imdb has an aggregate score of 3.0 so this movie stars george hardy as michael waits who before this film was a dentist in the local area and starred in this under control in 2020 and best worst movie in 2009 which doesn't count and i'll go into why margot prey plays the mother diana waits who is best known for this at gunpoint in 1990 and Best Worst Movie in 2009, which doesn't count, then I'll go into why. Connie Young plays Holly Waits, the only person to actually get an acting career out of this. She was in The Singles Ward in 2002, Jupiter Landing 2005, Ice Spiders, a film I'm sure we'll cover at some point in 2007, <laughs> uh, and a number of different character actors acting on TV, uh, as well as being in Best Worst Movie in 2009, which doesn't count, and I'll go into it. And then Michael Paul Stevenson as Joshua Waits, who's best known for directing Girlfriend's Day in 2017 and the documentaries American Scream in 2012, Attack of the Murder Hornets in 2021, and Best Worst Movie in 2009, which doesn't count. And I'm going to go into why Best Worst Movie doesn't count, because Best Worst Movie is a documentary about Troll 2. <laughs> so you don't get credit for being in other things when you're in a thing where people want to discuss the other thing that you were talking about. So no, it doesn't count. And that rant out of the way. <laughs> what went wrong with Nilbog? By the way, Nilbog is the name of the town that they go to in rural nowhere. Nilbog is goblin spelled backwards. Yeah, because that's the height of horror movies in the 70s. No, wait, this didn't come out in the 70s. In the 90s um, was <laughs> spelling things like Dracula backwards and having Dr. Alucard appear and they they Alucarded the word goblin to make the name <laughs> of the town. <laughs> oh God. Alright, what went wrong? Admittedly I was still struck by how much went right. And I say that with some massive quotation remarks around the word right. It went ironically right, I think is it really did. better. I okay. So this is a, this is the prototype for the room, guys. Seriously, it really is. How in the hell we can jump from one to the other? It's if you if you happen to watch this movie, it's very very easy to think that thirteen years later, the room could emerge from a template like this. It's it's not that much of a stretch. It really isn't. What went wrong, or what went ironically right? So, like I said, the first thing to hit me was that there's actually a cohesive narrative in this god-awful cinematic experience. I was especially surprised during the sermon scene where they started explaining why the goblins do what they do. 
it would have been insanely easy to just leave them as your average, typical bad guy motivated by bad guy things and have it go no deeper than that. The fact that they actually tied in weird vegetarians we look down on humans for eating flesh we want to take over the surface world because they eat flesh i was actually really surprised that they went as far as to connect those dots do you want to know where that comes from where did the whole vegetables are good in the movie but bad to the audience and meat is bad to the movie but good to the where did that where in the hell did that even come from okay one of the major reasons why the screen treatment for the movie Goblins, not the movie Troll 2, one of the major reasons the screen treatment for the movie Goblins got made was, as we mentioned, the director, Claudio Fragrasso, his wife, whose name I do not have written down here, and I'm not going to remember correctly, so I'm not going to try. She was the screenwriter. She was upset in 1988 and 89 that all of the people in her social circle in Italy had suddenly become diehard aggressive vegetarians and were angry and outright actively upset whenever anybody ate meat or talked about eating meat. And as a carnivore, she was so enraged that she was now the pariah of her social circle that she wrote a circle, a movie turning everyone in her social circle into goblins. That's it. Wow. That's where it came from. <laughs> that's that's why this happened. Because she was upset that she couldn't eat meat with her friends anymore. So we got goblins. Except we didn't get goblins. We got Troll 2. That's a surprisingly <laughs> rational way to come to a narrative like this. Holy shit. Yep. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's why vegetables are evil and yep. meat is good. That's why vegetables are evil, and they keep trying to push green food on you. Do you get it? <laughs> One of the other things that I thought was actually really interesting, well, I, I'm saying interesting, because I can't really think of another word for it. They seem to take a very large group of presumably people that knew how to act, or at least a little bit, and they, they managed to make them seem so disinterested in what was going on to the benefits of the action that was going on because the goblin characters are written as in their human forms which are differentiated by a four-leaf clover piece of skin burn on their body somewhere right do you get it yet have have we have to plants plants are good plants plants good meat bad they make them seem so disinterested and discon disconnected is the word I want to use and disconnected from what's going on. And somehow that works to the movie's advantage because those characters in their human forms are written as stoic, quiet. They don't talk a lot until they have to, to keep up the facade kind of. Yep. Would you like to know why that happened? Oh God. Wow. Okay. There's a reason for this too. Yep. All right. I, I have it. my reason. I have my notes. I have my, I have my notes for this one. So number one, it was an all Italian film crew. And the only person in the film crew that spoke any English was the director. Also not his wife, you know, the person writing the screenplay. So she wrote the screenplay and then Fragrassi translated it into English. Now take that, put that in a box. Let's come back to the people in this movie. You will notice I did not say the cast of actors. 
I said the people in this movie. Dear listeners, would you like to know why I said the people in this movie rather than the cast of actors? There's no actors in this movie! <laughs> Not a single person in this movie is actually an actor or an actress. They were just recruited from whatever fucking town in the middle of nowhere that Fagrassi decided to film the movie, they put out casting calls. George Hardy, who plays Michael Waits, the father of the family, and arguably, I mean, maybe best supporting actor role, maybe that would also go to the grandfather role, but like, definitely one of the most important people in the film, one of the biggest sets of lines in the film. He was a dentist with no acting experience before this movie. Wow. The guy that played the shopkeeper was a mental patient at a nearby hospital <laughs> to, who got a day pass to go to the auditions and then they had to schedule the scene that takes place in the shop around another day pass for him when he got cast. I can't make this shit up. Also, the entire movie was shot in three weeks. And I'm not even saying cameras were rolling for three weeks. I'm saying the Italian film crew was in America for three weeks. And the actors, I'm sorry, people playing roles in this film, were only given scripts for each day of filming at the start of that day, they would practice a scene once or twice, and if everyone had their lines right, they then shot. That's your movie. Knowing that now, I'm surprised it ended up as cohesive as it did. Right? Like, <laughs> oh, shit. But that's also why you get weird things. Like, they don't have any specific motivation going through, with the exception of George Hardy's Michael Waits character who is, you know, we're going to be farmers and we're going to show, you know, rural hospitality and we're going to really like everything that's rural. Like, he has a line going through. No one else has a through line because scenes weren't shot in order. They didn't have the full script until literally they were done shooting. They didn't know what their character motivations were at any point. Poor Margot Prey, who plays Diana Waits, does nothing but stand there and bug her eyes out at the camera for most of the film. It gets better near the half, the, the middle of Act 2, beginning of Act 3 is when it improves. But for all of Act 1 and most of Act 2, the line delivery is some of the most wooden, they could be holding cue cards right in front of you style that you will ever come across. There's nothing, nothing nothing right. there and now i understand why <laughs> yeah because there was literally nobody on set aside from the people saying the lines who knew how to emote in english and they didn't know how to emote in english because they weren't actors so yeah it's terrible it's the baddest of the bad there's no question about it arguably the best thing in this movie aside from the meme is the movie that is shown in the movie when they're all in the camper, when the boys are all in the camper, they're watching a film on TV. Mm -hmm. It's an Italian caveman comedy called Grunt. 
all capitals. You only see like 30 seconds of this movie. Grunt, it's... That could be its own podcast. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm saying we shouldn't re ever review it on this channel because it's not horror. Maybe we'll make it a Patreon goal of some kind. It may, in fact, be our first one out of 11 movie. Wow. It, it, it is unintelligible faux slapstick. Like, oh, it's just misogyny in a bottle. It is so bad. 1983. Uh, that might have to go on. That might have to go on one of the sidecast lists. When I was watching this, I was realizing, especially during, like I said, mid act two, mid act three, I was realizing that this movie is, and I use this word as loosely as I can, this movie is watchable. This movie is something that Very. will keep your attention for its runtime, but you will be bored while you're watching it. It both keeps your attention and bores you to tears at the same time. How does that even how does that even happen for 94 minutes? It's a train wreck of a malaise. It really is. And that's the only thing I can think of is is that it is so bad that there is some train wreck factor where you're just waiting first off to try to figure out how all of this works and ties together. Some of it does, some of it doesn't. Second off, from Oh my god! For the rest of the movie, <laughs> you're just waiting to see what other weird shit comes up. And the problem is, is that it never gets as weird as Act 1 until, like, the very last 10-15 minutes. So you have this hour in the middle where you're just waiting for Deadpool levels of weird shit. Fellini levels of weird shit. Which they could easily insert because they have this premise, for God's sakes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you could do so much more weird shit. Case in point, the goblins can shapeshift to anything they want. However, they only ever shapeshift to be the appearance of the locals in the town? Like, legitimately, this movie gets left turned immediately. <laughs> if one of the goblins shapeships as Grandpa Seth and just fucks with the kid, it's over. That's it. The movie's done. He's like, here, Grandpa Seth. Hi, I've come here to give you the thing that you're going to need to defeat the goblins. Eat this. Okay, done. It's over. They lose because they're stupid. We never get that far, though. They're smart enough to capture a family in this town. They're smart enough to get them... Very, very close to what is essentially death on multiple occasions. They're smart enough to set up some form of conversation, some form of communication with a family that lives somewhere else, a drivable distance away, but a distance where it's obviously several hours to drive there or back. Set up conversation, convince them to move to the town for the summer, and obviously not the only family they've done this with, because remember... There was the girl in the beginning who is not mm -hmm. a townsfolk because she's food, not friend. So there, this is obviously a format they have used repeatedly. They're smart enough to be cunning, and they're cunning enough to trick people to their doom, but can't figure out how to fucking trick a 10-year-old boy. Uh, again, continuity, you're going to find it sporadically at best. <laughs> Despite <sighs> all of that... The practical effects that are used for 
oh my god guy gets turned into a tree, for instance, and gets put in a flower pot. Yeah, that was well um, done. That was actually that was really well done. First girl that we find that, you know, of course he tackles her to the ground and then hits on her because, you know, what else would you do? She dissolves into a pool of green goo, and it's shown where they had cut out a section of the floor set that she was in to cause her body to sink, which was a really effective visual. Like, the visual effects in this are actually quite good. The practical effects are good. The screenplay needed about 15 more treatments. They needed actors. They needed somebody in the film crew that spoke English. Ironically, anything that you do to try to make this movie better will probably make it less entertaining and just a bad movie instead of a train wreck of a bad movie that you have to keep watching because it's a train wreck. (laughs) Again, we'll hold your attention for 94 minutes. For 75 of those minutes, you will be bored out of your mind wanting something to happen. But you should still watch it because you just need to experience this. It's such a weird thing. And then... The one thing I will give them some credit for is that they actually did try to stay consistent with the genre, and they didn't end on a happy ending, which could have very easily been shoehorned in. They actually do end on... It takes about 15 minutes till the end, but the music starts pumping up, starts sounding actually genuinely kind of creepy, kind of phantasmy almost, Yep, which is kind of nice. And they end on being poor guys. Mom is now lunch. So there are some good ideas here. And there are some, there are some things that I wish could have been improved a little bit because this might've actually made it a watchable film that people actually want to watch for non-ironic reasons. But then I have to wonder if they improved it, would it be the film that we have now which was watchable in its own awful fucking way? And the answer is no. I I really think any attempt to try to improve this movie in any way would simply result in it no longer being so bad it's good. It would just be so bad. If you make it any better, it just becomes bad rather than so bad it's good. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like... It's almost like a machine where all the parts have to come together, but half of the parts are broken, but they still function, kind of. Yeah, it's when you talk about movies that are so bad, it's good. As I said, there are only two ways to make it happen. Either you need to be a master filmmaker and perfectly craft an ironic parody, Mm -hmm. a sardonic parody of a horror movie. And if you do it with absolute masterful perfection you can get that story and that film. Mm -hmm. The other way is just to be completely fucking clueless and stumble into So Bad It's Good. You can't aim for So Bad It's Good unless you're a master filmmaker. You need to aim for good and be so bad at being good that you make So Bad It's Good happen. Welcome the trolls (laughs) to. Who on earth is going to enjoy watching this? Um, no one, and if, yet everyone. If you are a fan of So Bad It's Good movies, if you are a fan of, you know, midnight cult house meme material, if you are a fan of watching something purely to see where a meme came from in the first place, you will you will watch this and actually potentially have a decent time for it. I say potentially because there are times where it just slogs. I mean, again, if you're a fan of 
80s era horror. And I know this came out in 90. It was, however, <laughs> written in 88. And it was shot in a... It's a friggin' 80s movie yeah, anyway. It was <laughs> shot in a rural town. So everything has a look and feel of 10 years earlier than it is. That's rural townness. Case in point, the carpet. I, I, one of the things that I love about going back to 80s movies now, now that we're, you know, 30 to 40 years past them, is when I see things that I can time check as, yes, I remember that, okay? The carpet in the farmhouse that they go to visit. Mm -hmm. Specifically, the carpet that's in the stairway going up the stairs mm -hmm. was the exact same carpet I had in my living room in 1988. Damn. So, like, they're just, every once in a while, there's things, and even just, like, the minivan they're in, like, mm -hmm. you know, those are things that you just timestamp as so iconic for that era, and things that have stuck with you because they were just those things that were always there, like... That carpet, that carpet only existed in the 80s, I swear. If if you know what I'm talking about, it's that mottled colored carpet with like medium high nap, but it's dark in some places and almost white in others and was normally brown toned, but sometimes was blue toned and occasionally would be a different tone. But you remember this because it was the most ingenious carpet ever because if you spilled something on it, you couldn't tell because it was modeled from the start. Like, it was very much an 80s thing, right? It's in this movie. And you're like, oh, cool, it's the carpet. But, <laughs> yeah, it's just, I love going back and watching 80s retro pieces now just for those kinds of moments where you see things that weren't put in specifically to go, hey, do you remember this? But were just there because they were ubiquitous and they were fucking everywhere. And now when you go back and look at them, these time capsule pieces are the only times you can see those kinds of things because mm. they're not the things that people focus on. When you make a checklist of things you need from the 80s, your movie has to have a Walkman in it. Your movie has to have a boombox in it. Your movie has to have neon-colored high-top sneakers in it. There has to be Velcro somewhere. Like, you have a checklist for things that you do. Mm. And that carpet and a minivan are never going to be on the list. But you can't have the 80s without that carpet and a minivan. It's like little glimpses of accidentally nostalgia. Exactly. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> so if you like fairy tale style films, because this really does have a fairy tale feel to it. They did at least manage to get the atmosphere pretty damn close to what they were going for. Yeah. If you are a fan of the Ator medieval fantasy series, you need to check this out so you can see where the masks from Ator 4 originated because they got reused after this movie. Okay, so now we're going to go into this for a second. <laughs> get ready for this derailment alright so here is how convoluted the troll cinematic we're not connected to any of our own movies universe is ready there is troll 1 troll 1 comes out in 1980 I don't know 5 6 one of those I forget I think it was closer to 88 so troll 1 comes out and is a theatrical success meanwhile Claudio Fagrasso is working on this film called goblin and realizes after the editing stage that he might not exactly have an oscar award winner on his hands no so trying to figure out a way to prop this movie up to make sure it can make money he purchases the rights to film a sequel 
to Troll from the original writer of the Troll movie and then releases the movie Goblins as Troll 2 rather than Goblins, which is why there are no trolls in the movie Troll 2. The word troll is never even said in the movie Troll 2, and the entire movie focuses on goblins. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Three years later, we will get a sequel to Troll 2 called Troll 3, and it will be a sequel that has nothing to do with Troll 1 or Troll 2, with the exception of the fact that the protagonist has the same name as the protagonist in the first movie, but is played by a different actor and is involved in a completely different storyline with a completely different looking troll who is dealt with in a completely different way than in the first movie. And also another Troll 3, which is released on home video as Troll 3, presumably because it uses the masks from Troll 2 as the creatures in that movie. That movie, however, was never invented to be Troll 3. It was released as originally the quest for the magic sword, because it's a medieval fantasy, that was also rolled into the Ator movie series, if you're familiar with that piece of rubbish, mm -hmm. as Ator 4, because the actor that played one of the Ator roles also played the lead in the quest for the magic sword. So there is a recut of Troll 3 slash the quest for the magic sword where they ADR in a name change for the main character to change the name of the main character to Ator so that they can use the excuse that it's an Ator film and release it as Ator 4. Wow. And then there's Control from 2020, which has nothing to fuck all do with any of the four movies in the Troll trilogy. <laughs> Let that one percolate for a second. And it's called under con, C-O-N, capital T-R-O-L-L, -L, so that the word troll appears in the title. Stars George Hardy, who played Michael Waits, who is not playing Michael Waits in Under Control, but as seen as it, the movie is seen as a spiritual successor to the Troll series, effectively being Troll 4, or maybe 5, because we had two Troll 3s. I, I give up. Do we, do we want to... Do we want to dare rate this cinematic experience? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So, at Don't Watch This Film, we use a rather unique scoring system, lovingly known as the DW2F meter. On the DW2F meter, every film scores a one, because let's face it, you shouldn't watch most of these movies. However, the important thing is one out of what? A one out of one, which has never been given, is a misunderstood classic or a film that has been missed, and you absolutely need to go check it out immediately. One out of two is a... Great movie, which is horribly flawed. One out of three is a very good movie with some traumatic errors in it, all the way down to a one out of ten, which is a movie that you should never, ever watch. And we now have one of those that we have reviewed. If you want to hear us rail about a one out of ten movie, watch last week's episode. So, Tia, would you like to go first, or would you like to go second? I will go first. Typically, I do that. Okay. Um... Oh, God. So I was actually thinking, what in the hell am I going to rate this? I love it when they're hard to rate. I really, really do. I love it when we anguish over this part. It, it really. I literally, I was. I kept going back to it. Okay. Watchable film for 94 minutes. You're going to be bored for many of those 94 minutes. So watchable, in my head, is at least a one out of five. 
watchable, passable, middle of the road. You will you will focus what's on the screen and probably not think about it too much after the screen is stopped showing the pictures. The boring part is clashing with the boost I want to give it from the practical effects, which I'm a huge sucker for. So how do I rate this? Do I rate this against the practical effects or against the fact that we don't see enough of them because the parts that are interesting are cut with boring shit for the majority of the friggin' runtime? It's true. So I said, okay, so let's go ahead, start from the premise that it's one out of five and go from there. The practical effects would probably have bumped it up to a one out of four. They're really damn good, but we don't get that many of them. Combined with terrible pacing, terrible editing, terrible acting, and again, just the cardinal sin of filmmaking, which is just being boring. I have to rate this. Honestly, I'm torn between a 1 out of 7 and a 1 out of 8. The practical effects will probably save it from being a 1 out of 8. So I'm going to go ahead and give Troll 2 a 1 out of 7. 1 out of 7. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to see the first time this has happened in our podcast. I'm going to preface this by saying this is a movie you should only ever watch once. There is no reason to have this in your collection. There is no reason to come back to this later, with the exception of the fact that you find out that a friend of yours has never been to Nilbog. However, for better or worse, and let's face it, mostly worse, this movie is a cultural touchstone. This movie, not only in the late 80s to early 90s, was one of the films that spearheaded the direct-to-video horror genre, like an era of horror filming that is incredibly important. It also, 10, 15 years after it came out, became one of the earliest video memes on YouTube. Oh my god! One of the earliest video memes, which then also became a standard just image meme which is still in use today. People still know the oh my god today. There is a cultural significance to just how bad this movie is. The fact that the majority of the actors, I'm sorry, people speaking lines in this film, are either on drugs, need to be on drugs, or are legitimate fucking mental patients is the reason why this movie has to be watched. Now, because it has no rewatchability really whatsoever, once you've seen this movie, the eight minutes that are spectacular will be burned into your brain forever. And the 127 other minutes, no matter how many times you watch it, you won't fucking remember them. There is no reason whatsoever to rewatch this movie. So that means it obviously can't be a one out of one. However, this movie, I can't not give a one out of two. T is going to leave me now. I can't not give a one out of two because the movie is so bad, but then it, when it's good, it's so good. But then it reminds you immediately that you shouldn't expect anything good because it's so bad and the plot makes no sense and the cinematography is terrible and the acting literally doesn't exist because there are no fucking actors in this movie. And it's, oh, it's just, 
it it is the room it is so bad you have to see it this is an absolute train wreck of a film this is the suspense is unbearable i hope it'll last there's no way around it this is a movie that you have to see one out of two so i never contest ratings i have not contested ratings the entire time we've been doing the podcast the only thing that I'm going to ask is, and I say this all the time and I haven't said it in a while, you can't judge a movie based on what it could have been. You have to judge a movie based on what it is. And I'm not judging it by what it could have been. I'm judging it by the movie that we got and the cultural significance that has followed because of the fucking train wreck we got. Right. My question is, is it fair to add cultural significance to affect your rating? of the film and is that not essentially doing similar to the judging the film on what it could have been you're judging instead of doing that you're judging the film on the effect that it had instead of the movie proper is that fair absolutely because this is a movie that continues to have an effect on the horror space it continues to have an effect on actors screenwriters and directors to this day it is a living meme. It is the movie itself is a trope. Like the na- the the allocarding, the nilbocking of the name is a known trope and this is one of the movies that is always held up as the example. Whenever you talk about name reversal, you get allocard, you get nilbog. This movie exists rent-free in the heads of horror cinema creators 30 years later. Everyone who works in horror, I guarantee you, has seen this movie and took something away from it. Possibly what they took away from it is never fucking work on that film. Possibly what they took away from it is, Jesus Christ, I'm never going to do that thing. Insert your choice of that thing, whatever. However, everyone that works in the horror cinema space is familiar with Nilbog, and it has helped, for good or bad, shape the careers of everyone in the genre. There's no exceptions. The movie has a lasting impression. It is still being felt. I remember when we did um, uh, My Bloody Valentine. I said at the time this movie came out, it was a one out of one or a one out of two. However, its cultural significance has diminished. And every decade that has gone by, it's probably slipped one slot down to a one out of five. This movie is a one out of seven whose cultural significance made it a one out of two almost immediately because it sold and then made it a one out of two again when it was one of the things that propped up YouTube in its in its infancy mm. and then is a movie that is still so well known that a dude who isn't a fan of horror movies or bad movies threw money at us just to make us talk about Nilbog because he's not even a horror fan and he knows this fucking thing. The cultural ramifications of this film are immense. They shouldn't be. It doesn't deserve to be, but it is. And that can't be ignored. I didn't judge based on that. I'm not going to say that you're wrong because you're not. All of those are valid points. I guess we've never really had a movie of this... Yeah, you're right. You can just stop right there. (laughs) We've never had a movie of this. Yes. In the entire time we've been doing the podcast. So 
it's 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 not necessarily reasonable to judge based on past scoring when you have to factor that in. I still will never say this deserves a one out of two, this even is, knowing this is no better of a movie than Deathbed the Bed That Eats. Okay. Oh, the difference is Deathbed the Bed That Eats just sits there and is boring, while this movie sits there and you laugh at how bad it is. Like it it turns the corner from so bad into so bad it's good. And that's 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 why I got to give it a 1 out of 2. I mean, I understand that collectively we gave it a 1 out of 4 and a half. That's fine. I'm okay with it. I'm not going to give it a 1 out of 1 because it's not a movie that when you get done you want to hit the play button again. And that's what 1 out of 1 should be. But this is this is a movie that without this movie, there's a lot of movies that we wouldn't get. There's an importance in this film. It's it's a train wreck. It's terrible. I'm going to cinch up my belt an extra notch so I can avoid hunger pains. Who the fuck? What? Like, there is so much stuff in this when movie. When do you think he's going to beat the kid? Right? No. <laughs> yeah, there is so much stuff in this movie that doesn't work that the movie works. It is an accidental masterpiece. And I got to I don't know if I'd go that far. And, and I got to score it accordingly. Yeah. Okay. Well, absolutely we'll agree to disagree. We've had we've had disagreements on Yeah, it's just we've never we have never been 5 points apart before. It's usually 1 or 2. 5 is huge. And and that's fine. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why horror is great. I'm sure we'll have a two and seven going the other way at some point, and again we'll have the your smoke and crack conversation. So it's fine. I can't wait for us to talk about species two. Oh fuck you. <laughs> fuck you and fuck that franchise. <laughs> oh, so uh, I, I, that's it, I guess. That is that is that is troll two. As reviewed by the DWTF team. Yay. Once again, we want to thank Steel Eye. Uh, again, please visit his Twitch channel, Steel33EYE. Really easy to find. He's a good guy. Tell him that Adam and Tia sent you. Jump on over. Other than that, if you would like to help support the channel, you don't have to spend $20 at us to make us review a movie you want. You can throw $1 a month. That's totally fine. Every single dollar helps to be able to cover the cost of some of the movies we have to pay for to watch. For this project simply go to patreon slash don't watch this film one dollar five dollars ten dollars twenty dollars i'm not asking everybody to throw twenty dollars if you could throw at least one that would be fantastic and that would be all we need so thank you so much to all of our patreon supporters absolutely thank you guys so much for your support if however money is a little bit tight and we promise we understand. If you happen to have a Twitter, we do have a fairly active social media presence at Don't Watch This F. We post when new episodes are coming out. We post when the patron poll is up and the result of. So Patreons can actually decide what we watch for the end of the month movie. And usually they're fairly entertaining choices. I will say that. Yay. If you have a Twitter handle um, but don't have any money, a like, a comment, a retweet, any sort of engagement will get more eyes on us, which is ultimately as much support, if not more so, than anything monetary. So if you don't have any money but you do have a little bit of time and some social media tags, please feel free to check us out. Uh, we appreciate the support nonetheless because ultimately 
you guys are the reason that we do this for better or for worse and we love you for it promise most of the time <laughs> i was maybe, gonna say that maybe not so much in this time anyway <laughs> also if you just want to talk about this movie if you want to talk about any other movies we've had if you want to just say anything or ask us any questions dwtf mailbag at gmail.com fire us off a message say hi let us know you're listening we appreciate it all right so we have made it out of Nilbog, we are done with trolls or goblins or goblin trolls. Next week, oh dear listeners, next week, be prepared. I can't wait for next week. Oh, I this is insane. Be prepared for pastors and dinosaurs. And hookers and drug lords and ninjas. No, oh we're not watching seven different films. <laughs> we are watching the story of a priest who, on his visit to China, turns into a weir raptor who is convinced to use his powers to fight for truth, justice. And the Jurassic Way <laughs> by a hooker who convinces him to shut down drug lords who employ ninjas. I can't make this shit up. <laughs> I forgot about all that. Wow. I I honestly, I just can't wait to see how they're going to fit all of that into 90 minutes. Like, it's, oh, I can't wait. Anyway, thank you all very much for listening. Hope to see you next week. I am, as always, W. Adam Clark. My name is Tia, and until you hear from us, apparently from Jurassic Park, don't watch this.